Hey everybody, this is Craig Cottle, director of Nature Wine School and co-host of the Survival Show podcast. Thanks for joining me again today. I have a fantastic interview coming up with Evan Hill from Hill People Gear. If you follow me at all, you know I'm a big fan of the Hill People Gear line of products, chest kits and backpacks. I featured them in my second book, almost a whole chapter dedicated to to Hill People Gear quality stuff in my second book, again, Ultimate Wilderness Gear. But today, uh, Evan's going to be on, is going to discuss a range of things. We first go into preparedness and survival and what that means to him. And it's beneficial because he lives in a very different part of the country than I do, specifically the Colorado Rockies, and spent a great deal of time in Alaska as well. So he'll be talking about those experiences he goes into detail on what he refers to as efficiency versus equipment, which was, in in my estimation, a very enlightening topic to discuss with him. So we're glad that he's going to share that with us. We do specifically go into regional differences, like what we have here in Kentucky versus what happens in the Rockies as far as the land, bugs, animals, and all the different things that you might see out there. And we also get into some gear-based discussions on, obviously, packs, because that's a, a fantastic topic to discuss with anyone that designs packs, like Evan does, as well as, it may surprise you, a really interesting discussion on footwear and what works, what doesn't work, how to make sure that you have good coverage so you don't become susceptible to the number one injury in the backcountry, which is an injury below the knee. So, without further ado, here's Evan Hill. Hey, Evan, how are you doing today? Doing great, man. It's uh, springtime out here in western Colorado, so uh, can't can't be beat, really. What's the temperature like in western Colorado this time of year? Well, you know, it's variable, but right now we got what I'd say is a classic day. It's going to be up right around 70 and crystal clear skies, of course, which is most of the year. So it's uh, it's nice. Nice. That sounds good. So in Colorado, what part of Colorado are you on? High altitude, low altitude, you're right on the well, foot of the it, Rockies? or Yeah, yeah. Everything in Colorado is high altitude relative to most places. Um, mm-hmm. We're sitting at uh, right around 3,700 feet. But uh, uh, the part of Colorado that uh, that Hill People Gear is located in here is, it, it's really kind of unique. It's on the western slope of the Rockies, but it's right where the western, western slope meets what's called the Colorado Plateau. So, you know, all the pictures you've seen of places like Moab and uh, Sedona, Arizona, Grand Canyon, that's all Colorado Plateau. And it's all a whole bunch of sandstone, um, really wrinkled up and folded country. And so uh, Grand Junction, I look one direction, I'm looking at sandstone cliffs right outside of town. I look the other direction, I'm looking at a uh, 11,000 foot flat top mountain. So (laughs) nice. Yeah, we're right, right between those two zones, and man, it's it's nice seasonally. You know, just like the Ute Indians who lived in this valley, they'll depending upon time of year go one way or the other. So th- that's definitely something I want to get into a little bit later, uh, as far as regional difference, because I know most of the people that we talk to here, um, here on the Survival Show podcast, are more used to hills rather than mountains. But mm. we'll get into that a bit later. What I wanted to get into first is just this idea of preparedness hmm. and what that means to you, what that means to, you know, the Hill People Gear customer base, the folks that really uh, dig your all's equipment. So if you don't care, what does the word preparedness, what does it mean to you? Yeah, that's, um, you know, interesting topic. And, you know, maybe stepping back a little bit, kind of came up with this preparedness thing because um, we've always struggled to define who our customers are. Um, we're not really hitting a pre-existing segment, you know, for a long time, we just said, oh, it's people like us. Um, but, you know, which, what exactly does that mean? But I uh, don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> well, you know, well, right here, I might alienate some of your audience and say, you know, one thing we figured out is that uh, our typical customer carries a gun every day, um, right. whether it's for... Um, you know, for work or simply because they're a prepared citizen who, you know, has trained and believes in, in the importance of that. Um, but at the same time, we're not a gun company. I mean, I like to say I'm not a gun guy, which a lot of people probably laugh at that, but I'm not like super fascinated with them. Um, 
but yeah, carry a gun every day. So, you know, that's, that's one way to look at preparedness. A lot of people don't have that deep mindset that says, I'm going to, you know, basically carry the power over life and death with me. That's not really a common thing in today's society. It used to be super common, of course. Um, but, you know, also, um, you know, preparedness, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people focus on stuff and, you know, haven't done a little bit of living, been in some dicey situations and, you know, seen life now over the course of four decades plus, um, you know, preparedness tends to have more to do with a flexible mindset uh, and the ability to the, adapt to the realities of a new situation. Um, but, you know, once you get that mindset, then you start saying, okay, what are, what are some must-haves? What are some things that are going to really help me? I can get by with nothing, but, you know, what are the tools I want to put together um, to give me the ability to adapt to novel situations, to adapt to difficult situations? And, you know, rather than focusing too much on the tools, there certainly are tools that are going to help. You know, I can, I can get it done with nothing, but man, if I had these five things, these 10 things or whatever, uh, it's really going to up my ability to adapt to, to novel situations. Um, so, you know, that's a long-winded way of explaining it, but that's, uh, kind of the way I think in terms of preparedness. No, it's, I mean, it's exactly what our folks are hearing from me all the time for certain is just this idea of, I, you know, I'll, my approach is mindset, skills, tactics, and gear. And it's a, and it's a puzzle piece that involves all four of those things. And if you're not involving all four, then, then, um, you'll probably be deficient in one of those areas when you need it. And, you know, and again, I think tactics, people always uh, assume that I'm talking about, um, gun tactics or some tactics is just the ability to work with others from the way I approach it. So, communication skills and stuff of that nature. And definitely mindset has been the topic of a lot of my podcasts here mm-hmm. on the survival show podcast. So yeah, I'm right with you on that. Right on. So what, what about um, this word survival? Uh, I got in a funky discussion this morning on our Facebook group, um, my, my Facebook Na- nature Reliance school, Facebook group about what is true survival. What, how, how do you look at this word survival even over and above this idea of preparedness? Mm. Well, uh, is it the same or is it something different? You think? No, I think survival is something different. Um, and you know, here honestly, I'm I'm kind of following off of of something that was made crystal clear uh, to me by Bart Combs of Sulcoa Survival Systems, who's you know he comes from a military background, um, mm-hmm. and you know that's most of what he does is sells equipment to the military and trains the military, but. Um, you know, he makes it clear that survival is the exception case. It's not the standard case. Um, survival is what happens when all of your preparation has failed. Either you didn't anticipate well enough what the environment of the situation was going to be, or it was simply a, a case that was beyond your ability to anticipate it. Now you're having to make do with, in a situation you didn't expect, uh, with an you know, whatever equipment you happen to have. So that's how I think of survival. Things have gone wrong. Now you're really having to scramble to make up the difference. Right. So with building upon that, as far as skill sets are concerned, the things that we need to know, what do you think are the skills that are indispensable skills, things that you feel that are must-haves? You know, the one that I really, really think is, is crucial is um, flexibility, the ability to observe and then adapt flexibly. Uh, there came a point where I realized that you know what is a what is the best woodsman like like what is the one skill that that a woodsman has, and that it really is the ability to observe and adapt because. You know, you may think, oh, I know how to survive in the desert environment. But the reality is every single canyon is a little bit different. Every single canyon has a has something different in it. Um, so unless you are actually observing what's in that canyon, altering your mindset, well, this, this story is different. I thought I knew the template, but this is a little bit different than the template that's in my mind. You know, that's how human pro- humans process things. They have templates in their head, and they they have preconditioned responses based on those templates. But 
Uh, the number one skill, the the absolute best way to survive is to get beyond those templates and say, you know, is there something novel going on here? Are there resources that are outside of my template that I need to actually look and and recognize as resources? You know, is there behavior that I can put into action that's outside of my template? Uh, is there a different way to approach the situation? You know, I think of this, you know, I know that you like doing a lot of uh, handicrafts and woodwork and, and you know, that's, that is, um, you know, like if you're the guy who maintains an old uh, an old car, you're always having to think through problems. You're always having to pay attention. You know, I thought it was this, but oh, what is this? This doesn't look right. Why does this not look right? You know, things like that um, are, are all part of that flexible mindset that don't necessarily have anything to do with outdoors, but have everything to do with your ability to survive a novel situation in the outdoors. It's really funny that you said that because la- last week I changed out a um, antifreeze hose. It was I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a car guy. I don't know how to work on cars very well at all. But I had this major hose that had about three different forks on it and a coupler, and then I end up changing the brakes on my wife's truck and then changed the brakes on my truck. These are all three different things that I did last week that I had never done before in my life. And I'm looking at them going, I thought, I don't know that I'll have the time to do this. I'll I'll just take it and have somebody do it. But I thought, no, I'm just going to do it Mm -hmm. because that's, that's what survival is, is learning how to look at a problem, assess it, work through it and figure it out. I mean, I've got students that come to class. I had a, I have a guy that's a mechanic, super nice guy. And I watch him. He's not a woodsman. And I watched him work through those problems. And I was thinking him the, uh, the whole time I was thinking, if that guy can come to a class and learn how to do the things that I do in the woods and I can sit in my driveway and fix my wife's car. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's similar. I mean, it's just developing that answers to problems outside of what you call the templates. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, again, indispensable, very important skill. Yeah, I love coming out to Appalachia. You know, I'm not out there very often, maybe once a year to do some of that uh, joint training we've done together. But, man, you drive up and down those backwoods and you start looking with a critical eye at, at how people are living and some of the contraptions they've built, you know, the way they've added onto their houses, um, cobbled things together. Man, that's one of the most creative groups of people that, you know, I've had the pleasure of witnessing how they put together their material culture. It's unique and it's it's creative. It's It's awesome. Yeah, uh, so I'm in central Kentucky, and my wife's family is from the mountains, what we call the mountains here, uh, hills to you. But um, I remember the first time I went down there when we were dating, this is almost 30 years ago, and we had to work on her grandmother's house. And so all the neighbors came by and were helping, and there was a different screw here and a different nail here and a different piece of tin there. And we got the house put together. Nobody went to Lowe's and bought a thing. And mm-hmm. it's been waterproof for the last 30 years. Yeah. And um, it was just, it was kind of eye-opening because I, I didn't learn to do things that way when I was a kid. And it's it's exactly what you're describing. They're just self-sufficient, really. I mean, that's self-reliance in itself is problem-solving, mm-hmm. if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, how, do you, how do you think we can teach that sort of mindset, this idea of flexibility? Do you have any idea on on how you can teach both people that are close to you as well as people that are outside of your, you know, the people that are in your circle of people, I guess, uh, strangers, even if you're going to teach a stranger, how can you teach this idea of flexibility? You know, way back when I was a kid, I remember, you know, this was at the time living in Alaska and, you know, I was out with my dad in the field and he, uh, we were probably hunting. We were always hunting for grouse or, or rabbits or something. And, you know, we got to the edge of a field and he said, you know, Evan, I'm the kind of guy who looks at that stump right there and wonders why there's a stump right there. (laughs) How did it get there? You know, why is it a stump? Who cut it down? What was the purpose of it? And uh, that has always stuck with me. Hmm. I really think it starts with observation. You know, because when we use templates to observe things, we tend to exclude things that don't fit the template. Right. And, and so I think that flexibility starts with, no, see everything that's there. 
And that's why I like tracking, because with tracking, you can't look for certain things. You're, you know, it's pattern recognition. It's A, you're looking for patterns, but you're looking for details that maybe you don't even know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And you got to you got to catalog it and and say, you know, what all is here beyond just what my template is. So, um, you know, at its most rudimentary level, it's, uh, you know, you go out into an environment and uh, and and say, what is this? What, What what's the how did this get here? Why is this different than this other thing? I do, um, you know, I've taught once an intro to backpacking course. Um, and I'm actually going to do, do it again, uh, under the banner of the, uh, Randall's adventure training guys this Mm, summer here in Colorado. Awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, the biggest thing is like, okay, fine, here's these backpacking skills, but we're moving through an environment in a way that even experienced backpackers may not have, you know, what are these white scars on the rock? How did those get here? Everybody looks at them and, oh, you know what? Those might be strikes from horseshoes. And in, in fact, they are. And, you know, somebody figured that out. But, right. you know, you go through an environment and look at these novel things that don't fit. What What is this? And, you know, make people think about it. A, A see things that maybe they didn't pay attention to. And then B, well, let's let's come up with a theory for what that is and how it got there. So I say it on a somewhat regular basis that I don't know. I mean, I did some... I guess you would call it through hiking back when I was a younger guy. I don't think I could do that now. Uh, I find myself just getting intrigued by the smallest of things and, and digging into it, <laughs> particularly tracks, I guess, um, trying to figure out, for example, what are these little white scratch marks on the rocks? Uh, mm-hmm. And, and I think it's good just because you, the more knowledge you have out there, the more things that you see, then you're better prepared and you get to see even more things. Yeah, you know, partly I think that's a, you know, God bless them, but I think through hiking is kind of a, a city person's undertaking. Um, you know, w- what kind of person says, my goal is to cover this many miles over this span of distance, and I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. You know, that's got nothing to do with being part of the environment and everything to do with let's lay a city mentality on top of the landscape. And, you know, you see it all the time out here in Colorado, it's peak baggers, people, you know, there's 54 peaks above 14,000 feet and there's people who are listing them all or, you know, they're marking them all off. Um, right. And, you know, even, you know, it galls me when people are like, I went out and did a seven mile loop today. Well, that's got nothing to do with anything when it comes to actually, you know, integrating with that environment, understanding what it is, seeing it, learning about it, being a part of it. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of a different mindset, I guess. <laughs> and it's the mindset that I wanted to hear. Cause I mean, I, sometimes I get in my own head cause I think a lot of the same way. Although, you know, I have a lot of friends that, well, I won't say I have a lot of friends, but I've got two particular friends. One of them's hiking the AT now. One of them mm-hmm. hiked it, hiked it last year after he, after a long military career, he's actually family, but, but I, I just don't think I could do it anymore. I can see stuff in my backyard and get entranced with it. So it, it's interesting. Very interesting. Peak baggers, huh? Is that a thing out there then? Oh, it's yeah. huge. It's huge. I mean, I used to climb some 14ers when I was younger and now there's so many people doing it. You know, it's hard to be on a peak and not have 20 other people on the trail, which is for me, way too many people to ever see in the back country. So, um, because most of our folks usually hear me talking about, uh, you know, the Appalachian mountains, what's a 14 er Cause I, me and you've had this conversation, but you tell our audience, what's a 14 er when you say that, what's that mean? Right. So, uh, you know, the Rockies, Colorado in particular is pretty high altitude. So a 14 er is, is a peak that's above 14,000 feet. So in other states, that's a really big deal. Like Mount Rainier is an example. Everybody's heard of Rainier. You know, that's, that's one. And in, in Washington state, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the only 14 er in Washington state. And here in Colorado, you know, there's literally 54 mountains that are above 14,000 feet. Wow. And, you know, when you cut it down to 13,000 foot mountains and 12,000 foot mountains, you're talking about in the hundreds of, of little peaks and sub peaks that, that are that tall. Right. Which is a big critter to climb. So, oh, man. so when you, when you go out, how often are you up at that sort of elevation? Or do you stay low and then you go up that pretty regularly throughout the year? Or is that something ever so often? 
you know, I said back when I was a kid, so late teens, early 20s. And, you know, when you're a young man, you're you're motivated to climb mountains. But, uh, you know, I had this epiphany at one point when I was up above Timberline. I looked around and I said, you know, there's, with very few exceptions, there's no other animals coming up here. Elk might go above Timberline to grave, graze from time to time, but, you know, no no elk climbs a peak. Um, there's, uh, you know, I guess wolverines every now and then, crazy little sons of guns that they are, will just because, who knows. But, uh, uh, you know, when you're above Timberline, it's really kind of the death zone. Um, life is a lot harder. There's some marmots living up there. There's some pikas living up there. But pika, it's, what's um, a, I, I actually don't know what a pika is. It's like a little rodent kind of critter. Oh, okay. And yeah, I'm not zoologist enough to give you, you know, what exact actual, actual genus and everything. But, uh, uh, you know, anyway, so there's not really many animals living up there. And, you know, they're hibernating all winter, the ones that do live up there. And and so, you know, like I said, I had this epiphany. What what am I doing up here? This is not where the animals are. This is not where life is. It's It's kind of a weird human pursuit to say I'm going to go up here into the death zone. So... I hadn't actually climbed uh, a 14er for a number of years until a year or two ago. And my daughter, who was, oh, I guess she was 16 at the time, was like, oh, Dad, I want to climb a 14er. And I, Great. Everybody who lives in Colorado should to say they have. Uh, so we went and did a 14er. And that was um, actually the first time. Now, I like getting up near Timberline. I like getting up. I like camping at Timberline because of the views. But for me to just go up a peak is not something that I'm going to do very often. So when you say, again, because we've got quite a different ecology here, when you say at Timberline, do trees, for the most part, stop growing at Timberline, you mean? Yeah. So Timberline is the measure of um, where where trees stop growing. And you can get to Timberline two ways. You can go north. Uh, so like if you're in Alaska, you get to a certain point where you're so far north that trees simply don't grow. Uh, and that's basically somewhere south of the, um, the Brooks range. Um, or you can go up in altitude. So the further north you go, the lower timberline is. So here in Colorado, timberline is usually right around 10, five or 11,000 feet. Um, so that's, that's kind of where timberline is. And it depends on whether you're on like a northern exposure or southern exposure. And there's little, you know, microclimatic effects that affect exactly where timberline is on a mountain. But yeah, above that, uh, low shrubbery, flowers uh, in the springtime, lichens, moss. Other than that, there's there's nothing up there. So uh, because I wanted to go ahead and get into, you know, regional differences at some point in time, let's go ahead and dig into some of these. As far as being in your part of the world out there in your quote unquote neck of the woods, how do you like that? How I said that? That's pretty cool. Neck oh, yeah. Um, so other than just the differences between timber and hardwood versus I'm, I'm assuming uh, more conifers there than you might have deciduous yeah. trees here like we do here in Kentucky. But right. But um, what's what else would you think? Because you've been here a, uh, mm-hmm. a number of times and you've been there. You live there. What's the big differences to you? And, and particularly as it relates to survival. I mean, what kind of things should people be aware of going out there? Right. Sure. So um, it's a lot more arid out here. Water is just a bigger problem always a bigger problem. Uh, even in the mountains, water can be a bigger problem. Uh, you know, it depends on the year, but, uh, basically all of those mountain streams that, you know, we see in movies and everything are fed based on snowpack. And, uh, you know, this year we've got a great snowpack, so there's going to be streams all year long. But, uh, last year by late August, well, actually, it was even mid-August. There were streams that you could typically count on flowing, and the water, the snow had just all melted. Those streams were not flowing. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you get out of that desert country uh, out west of us, the Colorado Plateau country. There's never much water there. Uh, so planning your movements around water and just being prepared to carry more water uh, is a big deal. Like, I never leave the house without, oh, crime me, three quarts of water just because you know, I can go on an entire trip and, and I'm just not going to see any water and three quarts will get me through a half day's hike with a little margin of safety there. Um, so that's one, uh, number two, the weather is just bigger. Um, the mountains create bigger weather, thunderstorms, crazy winds. Um, and because there's less timber, 
uh, to hide in, you can be in a place where you are very exposed to big weather um, and temperature extremes. You know, you get six inches of snow on the 4th of July. I mean, that literally is something that happened once at, uh, oh, wow. to me when I was at 9,000 feet, I guess. So, yeah, I saw yeah, some people, you had put people don't get that. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So I'm sorry. No, uh, I'd no, seen no, something. Ahead, I think it was either you or Scott. And for those listening, Scott is Evan's brother. I think it was one of you guys that put a photo up. I mean, maybe a week or two ago. And I mean, there was all kinds of snow out still. Yeah, yeah. I yeah mean, that was, we're hard. still getting. Yeah, we're still getting good snowstorms up in the mountains. And yeah, I think I think that was me. But you know, that was up at nine thousand feet, and down here in the valley, it was just a little rainstorm. But it was cold enough up there that snow was coming down. I remember the first time I went to Alaska, my my in-laws lived up there for almost 20 years and we went up to visit. And the first time I went up there, obviously I had tried to read up because I was going to spend 20 hours a day (laughs) outside as best I could and, Mm -hmm. and, um, read up and cause my, my in-laws are not outdoorsy people, but you know, I'm going to Alaska. I'm on, I'm on a fish and hike oh, yeah. and all that kind of good stuff. And, uh, there was a guy on the plane that was getting off and he had never been to Alaska and he was going on a fishing trip and he was wearing what he would normally wear fishing in Georgia. He had a pair of shorts on and flip flops and he didn't actually take a jacket with him. And, <laughs> and somebody asked him on the plane, he, cause he was sitting across the aisle from us. Somebody said, so do you have any concern about mosquitoes? And his words, are, I'll never forget. And this is 20 some years ago. Do they, do they have mosquitoes in Alaska? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I want so, I wanted so bad to see what happened to that guy. I don't know. You know, I have no idea. That's the last time I saw the guy and maybe it's the last time everybody, anybody saw this guy. I don't know, but it's, it's worth our salt to try to find somebody like you, for example, if we're going to go into an area and, and try to get as much information as we can. Right. You, you know, it's, that really is, man, it's an interesting point. I actually had a, a survival instructor, um, from, you know, deep in the Southeast come out here, um, you know, to go on a hike with me at one point and the dude didn't bring a coat. No, and I was wow. like, I was like, man, this guy, like, this guy is a badass dude. Like his, <laughs> his skills are so solid. Like I was like, what don't I know? Yeah. You know, and at a certain point he was, you know, he was up on a high up on a mountain. I think we were at 10,000 feet and he had goosebumps all over. And I was like, okay, there was, <laughs> there wasn't something that I didn't know. There was something he didn't know, but the, you know, it's like, how do you get enough knowledge? And this is like, this is the thing about the flexible mind, mindset and the novel situations. You know, doing a bunch of advanced research is going to help. But it doesn't matter who you are or how experienced you are. You can find yourself in a novel situation outside of your experience base and suddenly it's survival. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the issue with this guy was that he knew so much had so much experience um, that, you know, here's the template and Mm -hmm. just had gotten into an environment that was outside the template. There was a guy, and you probably read about this, and this was actually a book that I wanted to write, you know, project I'll probably never get around to. Uh, It was a guy from Silicon Valley. He wrote, I think, for Wired Magazine, and he and his family were up in Southern Oregon, and they were following their GPS. Yes. You remember this yeah. story, Kim? I think his last name was yes, Kim. Yes, I wrote. See, right? I, every chapter in my book starts off with a story, and that was one of the stories in my navigation book, mine and Tracy's navigation mm-hmm. book. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Keep going. Go ahead. Right. So here's what just really fascinated me about this story was from a flexible mindset standpoint, this guy was maybe better than anybody who'd ever been in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, at the time I was actually working in the dot-com world, so I kind of knew where he was coming from. This guy was very, and, you know, just in the dot-com world, we were building things that had never existed before. There were no templates. Everybody in that environment was an incredibly good lateral thinker, very adaptable mindset, very flexible mindset. And, you know, my take from the information I was able to gather was that that story was about a guy who had all the mindset in the world and was doing everything he could do based on the tools he had. He just got himself into a situation that was so far beyond 
you know, his frame of reference that all the flexible thinking in the world, you know, at the end of the day, he died. Um, But uh, to me, it was fascinating because he did all the right things. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can't cheat the mountain and maybe some days it'll, someday it'll get you. But uh, that's uh, anybody can find themselves in that situation, no matter what their experience base is. I talk about it. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but I think ego is the thing that gets in the way. And I'm not saying that's the situation here with this gentleman at all. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that at all, but it seems right. like maybe the survival instructor you were mentioning earlier, they just, they can't open themselves up or, or allow that template to change. They just, their ego overrides them. Would you agree with that or? Yeah, it's uh, I guess ego can get in the way. I don't know. <laughs> Life will beat anyone down enough. If you put yourself in the right situations, ego ends up going away. Yes. Lord knows, but uh, yeah, that could be it. Uh, I don't know. P- humans are funny. I don't know if you. I I actually majored in anthropology, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how humans integrate with their environment and mm-hmm. you know how they go about doing what they're doing. And you know, w- we love we love the picture in our head. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's a picture of ourselves, a picture of the environment that we're in, a picture of our place in the environment, and. You know, that's that's the easiest way for humans to do business. And it's tough to get out of that way of doing business. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. I see what you're saying. That's a good point. Um, All right. Going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, we were talking about um, basically, you know, uh, preparedness and survival and and working with an environment, being within it and and knowing what your mindset, skills, tactics, gear. Those are just the words I like to use. Um, Mm hmm. This word, when we were chatting before about you being on, you came up with this word efficiency, and mm, mm-hmm. and it's it's about efficiency and not equipment. Would you care to dig into that a little bit for for those listening? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is something that at some point I realized um, that you know the the best traveler is the one who is the most efficient, the best backcountry traveler, um, and you know I've done martial arts on and off over my life and you know i've been training pretty consistently for the last three years again you know you think about how a really good martial artist moves there's an elegance there's an efficiency there's an economy of motion and you know i think of backcountry travel the same way um you know the the greater your experience base the more you get done with less stuff and with less movement i've heard you say survival is a lazy man's game it's kind of the same Mm -hmm. thing sure um, you know, it's all about maximizing. And, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, there are people who carry a whole lot of gear, right? I'm prepared for anything. And, you know, I get that. They are prepared for the exception condition that they've never experienced and probably will never experience. But it doesn't matter how strong you are. Um, if you were carrying less gear, you could have gone, you could have climbed 500 vertical feet higher. There's just more you could have gotten done. Um you know, and on the other end of the spectrum, there are guys who, who carry, you know, they pride themselves on carrying a minimum of gear and really lightweight gear. And they're actually working harder and getting less done because they're having to work so hard to overcome their lack of gear. You know, like I, I picked up a, um, it was a continental divide through hiker once in Wyoming. He was looking for a ride back down to town. And I looked at the dude's pack and I knew it was like a high end ultralight pack and it was just beating the dude up. And, you know, cause I could tell he was working harder because of this pack that had very little structural integrity to it, um, had very little load carriage it was providing him. And, you know, so he probably saved three pounds on his back by using that pack versus like, you know, one of our packs, but he was working way harder than he would have been if he'd had a decent doggone pack to carry his stuff in. And so, you know, that's the far other end of it. That guy was not good on efficiency either, you know, because he was focused too much on weight reduction and didn't figure out what the the most efficient way to get the job done was. So you, uh, for those listening, and we try to make this pretty clear, uh, Evan Hill, you're the primary designer or are you the only designer for Hill People Gear products? Uh so I'm I'm the only designer um but there's a whole lot of um I'm the only designer when it comes to actually sitting down patterning sewing. Scott and I actually kick a lot of stuff back and forth. Um we have a lot of conversations about what about this feature, what about that feature. Um and you know Kevin McDowell is now in that loop as well. Um so 
you know, it's kind of designed by committee, but when it comes down to actually putting it to paper, I'm the guy doing that stuff. And everybody that follows me knows that I'm a big fan of Hill People gear. What, um, outside of the gear that you all provide people, what other things do you see in this? I guess I'll just call it the survival slash bushcraft slash preparedness community that you think using this word efficiency needs to be helped. Not saying that you are going to provide products in these areas, but what kind of things are you looking at? Because there are things that I know that I look at and go, I don't understand why you carry that. I just don't get it. But what are your thoughts on that? Anything that jump out at you? Well, and I'm not asking you to bash anybody, any entity, just, just looking at gear in particular. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's well, you got to step back and say, what's your goal for being out there? You know, there's a whole lot of the, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of that stuff that I think of as not survival, but historical reenactment. Mm -hmm. And I even call it historical reimagining. You know, Oh my gosh. I love that. (laughs) Right. Well, oh, you I'm know, stealing it, that. Is a West? I'm, I just, I'm stealing that. Evan. Yeah. I'm stealing it right now. I'm stealing it. <laughs> well, so you got to remember, like, like I said, major in anthropology, sure. and Scott, Scott did as well. And in the temperate latitudes, um, or you know, the the middle latitudes where we live, there's no culture that has ever existed without pack animals. Like they needed so much gear to to just to survive in this environment, to live in this environment that they use pack dogs. They use horses once they got them. Uh, you know, there's llamas, there's the reindeer. And, you know, so there's, there's this idea of like, Oh, the lone mountain man walking somewhere and living that way. And that, that never happened. It literally never happened. Um, you read the accounts of the fur brigades, those dudes rolled like 120, 150 deep and they had huge pack trains and they still, by the end of the winter, were usually starving. You know, so, you know, so when when I look at bushcrafting, you know, I'm basically seeing guys who are kind of reinventing a past that never existed and, I mean, it's really cool. Like, there's a whole lot of cool handicraft skills. I see the things people are building. You know, I used to love making, you know, hooches when I was a kid. Um, But a lot of that stuff, A, never really happened. And B, you know, so then what is it that, uh, what is it you're trying to do out there? And Scott actually had an insight that I thought was fascinating. He said, you look at where these guys are doing bushcrafting. For the most part, it's places where there's less wild country. So if you need a way to make your local state park wilder because it's only 400, 500 acres, you can cross it in an hour, man, go out there with a bare minimum of equipment. And, and all of a sudden that's a much wilder place than it was. Yeah, I agree. And I I think he's Mm -hmm. onto something there. I mean, this is stuff you can do in your backyard and make your backyard quite an adventure just by raising the bar for what it takes to be comfortable. Right. So I, I don't know. That's again, I didn't talk real specifically, but um, that's kind of the way I think about all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm with you 100 um, percent. I try my best to try because uh, there's an audience of people that listen to us. And I don't want to upset anybody, but I just think that without a doubt, I'm going to steal your wording of historical reimagining because I've been saying it different way for a while now. And there's nothing wrong with people getting into it. I consider it a hobby for most people. Uh, they've never had to live that way. So it's a hobby. Uh, it's not something that they've had to go off and, and be in an environment and make their way for any extended period of time. So it's, you know, it's just something to do. And, and if people are getting outside and they're not bringing harm to the environment, then I'm about it. So mm-hmm. uh, it just yep. seems to be something that is, is worthy of discussion. So um, we right. talked uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, you know, I'm sorry, just as a quick side note there. And, you know, Scott was a leave no trace instructor and we're, you know, we're big on leave no trace. And that's the flip side of this, doing no harm to the environment. You know, a whole lot of these these ways of doing things are pretty doggone resource intensive. Yeah, without a you doubt. And, I mean, I, I've been we, preaching. We'll go, go, on, to, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, like we'll go up into the forest and, you know, it's there's different things that get Scott's 
backup versus getting my backup, but he gets his backup every time he sees somebody's abandoned hooch up there in the forest where they've been quote unquote bushcrafting, you know, and left, left something up there. That's, that's well, no good. I, I guess me and Scott would get along really well too, although I've never met him. And well, I did meet him at SHOT Show, but, uh, but I'm the same way. And, and we're, we're starting to have that major problem here in our neck of the woods because we don't have that big expanse of, of uh, wilderness like you do there. And so people were, they don't even leave the trail very far and they'll build a, you know, a bushcraft wiki up or some variation. And it's almost like a trophy and they, they leave it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to do my best to educate others. I, and I've gone so far as I have, I take some issue with leave no trace because they get a little bit uh, political here and just a little bit too anal. Like it, Here's the issue with, yeah, I'm, I'm going to just like, that's a hot yeah, button go for ahead. me. Um, here's the issue with that. The leave no trace ethic primarily is we do not belong in nature. That's the first principle. And if you take that too far, there are some really bad consequences out of that. So, uh, you know, like we've always believed in stewardship. Absolutely which is a very different way of thinking about it than leave no trace. You know, I remember, you know, when I was in college and I was, you know, auditioning to be an outdoor leader with the college program. And, you know, some kid from back East who had just started going outdoors the year before when he'd gone to outward bound said, remember, we're just visitors here. We don't belong here. And I, I just, I didn't say it, but I was like, dude, speak for yourself. Mm -hmm. I live here, man. This is, this is my environment. So I'm now sorry, the, go ahead. The podcast I had last week, Evan, is on the topic of what I refer to as positive impact, tread lightly. And and when I say yes. positive impact, we, we are part of the environment. And, you know, I have people tell me all the time that, well, I saw in some pictures that some of your students cut down some trees, like we might cut down three trees. Well, that's because I've studied forest management and those species needed to be removed from that particular environment. And I know that. And number two, I planted 500 trees this week. So don't, you know, don't, I mean, I'm yeah. having a positive impact on the environment. So I, I just get, I get aggravated. Yeah. I try to have, no, have I almost, I almost cuss with the, what are you talking yeah. about? I live here. So yeah, we're, we're on I the just, same page. It just there. seems like, um, we're, if we're going to be an environment, I think we need to positively impact it. And, and again, in this podcast last week, I talked about positive impact, stewardship, conservation, what all those words mean, how they apply to survival and bushcrafting and what have you. So I think, yeah, I think we're me and you and Scott oh, yeah. would enjoy hanging out some more. Good stuff. Same page. Absolutely. Uh, getting to something a little bit more concrete. Um, one thing that you and I've talked about, I'd love to hear your thoughts for our audience in particular is footwear. Cause we all walk out there. Hmm. Um, and again, I have, we haven't mentioned this yet, but you were a hotshot, right? And yeah, for those, uh -huh. not, for those that don't know what a hotshot is, tell us what a hotshot is. Right. So, uh, that's a forest firefighter. Um, and basically hotshot crews are, um, kind of the, the highest level of training in the, in the wildlands, uh, fire and, you, they they get sent to the biggest fires and the hottest parts of the biggest fires and it's uh, above all it's just excruciatingly hard work um so you know that's that's what a so having is. good footwear then versus having good footwear just to be hiking and enjoying the outdoors in general tell us how people from your perspective what works and what doesn't work Right, right. So, you know, it's funny. We we talked about templates and the image that's in your head. Um, uh, so the classic boot for a hot shot to wear is um, something called a logger slash smoke jumper boot that's been made by Whites. Uh, and now there's other brands, Nick's, um, going back a hundred years. And it's, it is the boot. Like, you know, if, if you're not wearing this boot, you're not a hot shot. And it's actually not at all a good mountain boot. It, it just is, it, it's a poor choice. So we're talking about a stacked leather heel boot that has like a inch and a half, two inch heel on it. And, you know, I've got a pair. I love it. Tough, tough as nails boot. Mine has 12 inch tops. I got a custom pair back when I was fighting fire. Um, but that high heel, you know, there's, there's no stiffened midsole. The thing 
uh, w- once it's broken in or you're broken into it is is extremely comfortable, but it doesn't really offer much in the way of ankle support. And it doesn't really uh, give you much midsole stiffness for punching in on um, off trail rocky terrain. But, you know, when I when I first showed up on a hotshot crew, um, you know, I was wearing a pair of good mountain boots, you know, leather, Norwegian welt, um, extremely supportive no heel mountain boots. And I was succinctly told, this is a hotshot crew. None of that's going to fly. Get yourself a pair of whites, which is what I, as an FNG, that's exactly what I did. And I mean, you know, it's funny, like the smoke jumpers, um, you know, so they jump out of planes on small fires and, um, you know, the work is not as hard as being a hotshot, but the level of training is extremely high and, and it's very selected to become it. But, but these guys, they have metal braces that they put on over their whites, those who still wear whites, because whites are so bad for jumping wow. out of a plane in. Um, but, it, you know, it's this is the picture we get in our head. You know, we're smoke jumpers. We've got to wear a pair of whites, right? Um, so, anyway, so a lot of, quote-unquote, hunting boots are, are still based on that template. They may not have high heels, but, uh, you know, that, that idea that, like, a tall upper is going to give you support, and that's just not true unless it's built a very certain way. Um, the people who know how to build good mountain boots are Europeans. Uh, you know, your Italian brands, your German brands. Uh, typically, it's only going to come above the ankle, but it's going to have a good pronounced heel cup. It's going to have a relatively stiff midsole. And then it's going to be designed in such a way that when you lace it tightly, it locks your ankle in very nicely. It provides great lateral support with a certain amount of front to back movement. So those are the kinds of boots I prefer. But like when you start talking about boots, I mean, the first thing you got to do is step back um, and understand body size. Uh, So you and I, Craig, I think are about the same size. And, um, you know, I did take vertebrate zoology in college and there was a, a really wonderful book that, you know, explained so much about the world where it was principle based called How Animals Work by Newt Smith Hampson. And one of the um, one of the fundamental principles, you know, is very simple, but as volume basically as a creature gets bigger, uh, surface area is only going up as a square function, you know surface area is length times width, whereas volume is going up as a cubic function. So this means, so, I mean, if you're mathematically minded, one is a flat line that's going up on a graph and one is a hockey stick line that's going up. So this means that the, and this is why like the classic example is, is elephants. An elephant has a huge, huge leg, even relative to the shape of its body. Why is an elephant shaped like that versus why, why can an elephant not be shaped like a horse? And the answer is the, because volume has gone up as a cubic function, all of a sudden the surface area you need to support that volume is much bigger relative to the size. That's why an elephant's leg is the shape it is. It right. looks like a tree trunk. Okay. So the same thing applies to people like my fighting weight as a hotshot was 195 pounds. So, like, I've never been small enough to be able to experience what it's like to be, like, probably the average weight of somebody who's 160 to 180. Um, so a lot of a lot of my reference for boots and, and good footwear is simply based on my body size, and I understand that. If you can get by with, with a lighter weight boot and less support for your body size, that's probably going to be more efficient. But, um, you know, when I'm out in the mountains, so I'm, you know, probably weighing these days 210 to 220. I don't know. I haven't weighed in years, but it's, it's something like that. Uh, and then I'm carrying a pack that's usually around 50 pounds and I'm traveling off trail. So I rely on a good pair of mountain boots, uh, not just to keep from breaking an ankle, but as a tool to climb loose slopes, to punch into snow banks, to side hill. To, to cross talus fields. Talus fields is just big slabs of rock laid everywhere, sloughed off the side of a mountain above Timberline. And so for me, that's just absolutely essential. So I don't know, like I was going to do a boot video. You know, we have this longhouse instructional series and I, I don't know what to tell folks because I understand that most people are actually smaller than I am and their requirements are not the right. same as mine are. Hey, um, that the... Uh... And so you, you have, know, I, just because I know yeah, a lot of ahead. people listening are always into YouTube, you all have a YouTube channel, right? 
just and what's it called? Yes. Just so everybody yeah. knows. I yeah. know what it is, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, Hill People Gear, and there's basically three things we do on there. One is product videos, which probably we should do a lot more of in the field videos, which is our trips, which I think anybody would enjoy watching. Uh, and then we have the Longhouse Instructional Series, which uh, is basically kind of coursework, pre-coursework on a variety of outdoor subjects. Very good. So, and, and I've watched a lot of those videos. I highly recommend people that are listening to check those out. So please get into those. Let's talk about your packs because it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that you've helped me with is that, you know, and I wrote about this in Ultimate Wilderness Gear after a conversation with you was, you know, it seems like people want that pack that extends, in essence, off of their body that has that trampoline effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm assuming that, and I'm assuming yeah. that's because they don't, they want an airy surface behind their back that they sweat right. can get away or what have you. I don't really know what that's about, but talk about packs and particularly your carriage system and, and how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah. That trampoline system is kind of a funny little side note in the history of packs, I think. But at any rate, basically the way I think about it breaks down really simply. You have your, your center of gravity and you have the pack's load center of gravity. And, you know, if you just think of basic high school physics, you take your backpack, part of it is how it's designed, part of it is how it's loaded, but there's going to be somewhere you can put a point and say, this is the center of gravity of the backpack. And gravity wants to pull that straight down. And my goal with backpack design is to use gravity as much as I can to pull that straight down into a supported area, which is your pelvis. You know, I don't, I don't want to load your shoulders. Um, that's a bad idea. I mean, I personally, uh, people will carry shoulder-only loads far in excess of anything that I ever want to. But for me, if it's going to be more than 20 pounds, I want it on my, on my pelvis. And I want a system that's designed to put my pack center of gravity uh, just as close to my body center of gravity as possible so that that gravity helps load that pack into my lumbar area and on my pelvis and you know at its at its core that is the hill people gear design philosophy there's few other elements to it but that's the big part of it right there and i can attest that once i finally figured out for me uh, basically with with your help on how to get my pack set up right it's just, it's like, it's like a non-issue for me. I mean, I, I had been rucking for years. I, I ruck for exercise and, uh, and, uh, cause like I'll, I'll go out and ruck about four days a week just to get a couple three miles in. And, and it changed dramatically when I started carrying Hill People Gear packs because it was the same weight. It just wasn't kicking my butt the wrong way. I mean, I'm still exercising. Yeah. I'm still carrying weight. Uh, I still feel it, but it's not hurting me. And I was just farm boy. I'm farm boy tough and farm boy stupid, I guess. But I mean, I just love it. I mean, it just it's right. The center of gravity is is fantastic. Yeah, it's um, people typically once they've tried one of our packs out, they get rid of all their other packs and you know just use our packs just because the you know it's designed for that load carriage first, and then everything else follows. And my that. understanding is that we have a. We, not we, me and you, but you have a collab knife working with LT Wright. My big fans, LT Wright, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've got, uh, you know, so what is Hill People Gear? What is it that we, what is it that we do? And yeah, we make packs. Um, you know, we have the ability to, uh, you know, just because we've got great production with our partners at First Spear, so it's easy for us to make packs. But uh, fundamentally, what we try to do is create the gear that we're looking for if it doesn't already exist. And, you know, knives are honestly just about any decent knife will get the job done. Um I think people really get wrapped around the axles in a way they don't need to about different grinds and this and that. And, you know, I'm sure I'd go down to the store and get a knife that would serve me just fine for the rest of my life. But, you know, knives are also personal. It was most likely the first human tool. And, you know, there's a lot to a knife that goes beyond just its ability to get work done for us. So, you know, our our dad had a knife that was custom made. Actually, my mom had it made for him, you know, back in Idaho in the late 60s. 
And, you know, this knife for us was always like, man, this knife is awesome. And uh, so in our mind's eye, you know, this knife was kind of the prototype of what a great knife was. And as, you know, we've gotten older and used a variety of different knives and trained martial arts, we've kind of come to a, you know, an understanding of here's here's a knife that we want to carry every day. And, you know, we were actually talking about doing it in conjunction with a, a nether maker and uh, that that didn't work out, which was fine. But, you know, we've uh, LT Wright, the other maker actually said, you know, you really ought to talk to the guys at LT Wright. And, uh, man, I, I sent them the drawing the, that I had come up with and they nailed it. I'm really excited about this knife. It's the knife I've wanted my whole life. And, you know, again, there's other knives that'll be plenty good. I'm not going to say this is, you know, some huge improvement over what's out there, but it's a knife that, you know, that, that we like a heck of a lot and are going to be super happy to be selling. Very good. And LT, I'm designing a knife with them too. So, uh, and I mean, they're just mm, great. I, I don't know if you saw it. If not, I'll try to share it with your Hill People Gear group. But I, Jennifer, and I, my wife, and I went up to LT's place and we videoed uh, their whole shop, every part of the process, and to share it with mm. people so that they could wow. see you know, what LT and them guys are all about. They're good, man. They're just good people too. Yeah. They build great yeah, equipment, but they're true. just good people. I like them. So, and my understanding is there is a, is there like a umlindi out there? That's a special umlindi for LT right folks. And oh yeah. For those listening, if you've ever seen any of my videos or photos, the pack that I'm carrying is a Hill People Gear umlindi. I wear the chest kits too. A lot of people ask me about the chest kits all the time, but, but, uh, the pack that I carry is an Umlindi and you have a collab with LT and those guys on that too. Yeah. Yeah. They reached out to us and they actually did. I think it's been two, three years ago now. Um, they ordered our, our smaller pack, um, in a custom color scheme with a couple of custom features custom to them and they sold them. And, and now it's funny. I see those come up every now and then on Facebook and they're highly prized and, you know, cause there weren't that many made. And, uh, this is going to be the same, same thing. It's that, uh, that Umlindi pack and a custom color sp- scheme with a couple of, uh, unique features that's only going to be available through LT, right? And, uh, it's always fun yeah. when we can do that with a company. Well, anything else behind the scenes I'm not aware of any secrets that you can tell that you're allowed to tell or anything going on? Well, by the time you air this, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be public, um, HPG mobility. We've, uh, we've got a off-road shop here that's been working on all of our rigs for, I don't know, six years anyway. And, you know, they're good dudes. Uh, they're Eagle Scouts, family-owned business, a couple of brothers, real similar to us. And, uh, you know, good good integrity, good values. You know, they run their business based on integrity and not necessarily based on the bottom line, um, which is something that's near and dear to our hearts. And uh, one point, one of them said, hey, look at this seat back in this new Jeep, the new Jeep JL that was introduced in... Uh, last year, I guess. And, uh, you think you could make a good bag that would mount on the seat back. And I looked at it and basically it's, it's the military PALS system, but implemented in this kind of really weird way, you know, like the designer who did it, didn't understand the point of PALS. Uh, so basically it requires kind of a weird PALS layout. It requires either a three wide or a five wide or a seven wide. And there's not a whole lot of PALS pouches made in in those sizes. So, you know, it started out with designing uh, a couple of uh, pouches that are designed expressly for those JL seat backs. But, you know, then we started thinking about it. Well, you know, we spent a fair amount of time in our rigs. I mean, that's the other thing about... You know, I don't know how it is where you are, but there's a whole lot of jumping off points mm-hmm. here, you know, whether they're trailheads or just remote wilderness accesses where it's a decent off-road adventure just to get back to where you're going to start hiking. You know, and the other thing that we figured out is, you know, there's people who are willing to to travel miles on foot and there are people with built rigs who can get on hard roads, but the overlap between those two groups is not huge. So if you're somebody with a built rig who's willing to do some walking, you can really get into some remote country by virtue of first driving somewhere difficult and then setting out on foot. So, you know, we've we've had built rigs our whole life and travel in them. So we decided, well, let's let's branch out into this market. Let's start doing some more products for um, 
essentially off-road vehicles, and that's what HPG Mobility is. And so we're we're going to be at Overland Expo uh, next week down in Flagstaff, and we're kind of launching the line there. And it, there's not a lot of products in it, but we're going to be expanding that over time. Nice. Um, and so that's kind of the other big yeah, big I news heard that coming one at all. out this cool. spring. Good stuff. Anything else? Anything else going on your way that you'd like to tell everybody about? Because we love giving you all the opportunity to talk about what you're doing. Or right, right. Those are the those are the two real big okay. things we're working on this spring. Well, man, this has been great, Evan. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me. Yeah, yeah. I wish uh, we'd get together in person. Yeah, I don't know. Do. Um, maybe we shouldn't say anything about that other stuff, but maybe we'll get to see each other this fall again. I hope. I haven't heard much about it, but maybe we'll get yeah, to see each yeah, other. Yeah. Um, we were. I was talking to yeah, yeah, to exactly. another mutual friend. You'll probably know who I'm talking about. I won't bring him up right now either, his name at least. But I was talking to him last week about coming out and coming to the uh, Pagosa Springs, and then c- come on up to your oh, area of the yeah, uh-huh. woods as well sometime. So we got. Oh man! And I, I, I think I said something on the Hill People Gear Facebook group, and like I had like four or five people from the Nature Line School community go road trip. So. Maybe maybe you'll see a truckload of us show up someday out there. <laughs> oh boy, that'd be outstanding. I'd definitely take you out on some good trails. Well, it's been good. Thank you again for being here. If something My comes pleasure. up, we'll holler My at pleasure. you again. If you're willing to come on, I hope you are. And anytime anytime oh, yeah, you want to sure. shout out for about sure. something new that's coming up, let me know and we'll get you on here. I will do yeah, that. Yeah, we appreciate you. Appreciate Thanks, it, man. Greg.